Oh, it's so powerful. My soul needed to be in this room, given the week that we just had. And what's crazy is we got to be in here Thursday night for worship night, just calling on God. And it didn't hit me until we actually got an email from someone who's in Germany when everything was going down in Ukraine. And they said, how crazy is this? That the week the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, we had a worship night almost right after that officially happened and called on God to do what only he can do to protect people there. And then this is happening the exact day. We don't schedule these worship nights often. We have like five a year. And we're going, this is not an accident. We get to stand in the gap for people. But it was also a sobering reminder that even when the news cycle moves on from a catastrophe, that's not when it ends. That even as we're talking about what's happening in Ukraine this week, Christians are dying in Afghanistan. Christians are dying all over the world. Terrible things are happening. Hunger exists. Poverty exists. Difficulty, rape, slavery, like all these issues are always persisting. Not to mention all the things that we're carrying in a wealthy, prosperous country. We got real issues and real problems and real tragedies that we need God to come and invade our space. And as you think about all that, I think this week was a reminder of just how evil the world is but also begs the question, where is God in all of this? If we understand God allows suffering, and we understand that he moves to comfort those who are suffering, but this is a little bit of an overwhelming week to go, God, seems like this one would be an easy one for you. Like you could just use, and you know you can talk to God that way when you're praying, by the way. You can go to him with boldness and go, God, just help me work this out. You're sovereign. You're totally in control Evil persists, and it seems like it's getting worse every single day. What do you do with that? And I would answer that question by going, we have everything we need to know the answer. It's right here. You know, we've been walking through Daniel, which is about evil kings doing evil things, and God preserving a remnant for his glory because of guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we have right in the middle of this story a Savior who is born to us and sent from heaven. So where is God when the world is falling apart? God didn't run from the pain when he could have flicked planet Earth off into oblivion. God came down and became one of us in our pain. And when you read the story of the scriptures, it becomes obvious that God is not an aloof, disconnected God waiting for us to figure it out. God is a God of compassion and mercy who joined us. And watch this. As crazy as this sounds, God's response to us being eternally separated and broken away from him was to not just join us in our pain, but to take on the suffering that was due us for sin in his son, shedding his blood on the cross to restore a right relationship with us and guarantee to us the kingdom of God that exists forever and ever with Jesus on the throne. Where is God? Oh yeah, well Daniel... The whole story is a super chiasm, which we've been freaking out about and looking at the middle of all these little chiasms. Well, guess what's what right in the middle? Daniel 7, which is where all the nations and peoples of every language and tribe come together around a throne where the Son of Man sits and has dominion forever and ever. That Son of Man, we don't know this in Daniel, but we know this because we know the whole story at this point. It's Jesus and his kingdom will reign forever and ever. And until it does, the kingdom of God is expanding and exploding on planet earth through the bride of Christ, the church. 
So where is God? He is right here. He is in it with us. He's sovereign over it. And the comforting thing to know is that we know the end of the story, guys. Thursday night, this was so comfortable. Or not comfortable. It was so comforting to think about the end of the story because I know people are so anxious right now. We've had many things like what's happening this week happen throughout the history of our world, but never when there is this level of technological development and this many nuclear weapons in the world. There there was a level of angst that was like, okay, if this person decides this and then this country breaks out against this country, this could, whoa, this could escalate really fast into the whole world getting destroyed by nuclear war. Good news as you hear a plane flying away and it feels a little scary in this room. We're next to the airport, guys. Um, Good news. God gave us the end of the story and that's not how it ends. The end of the story is all of us who are in Christ living forever in the kingdom of God. And between now and then, yes, there is suffering, but there is never a time where humanity will be blown up into oblivion. Humanity will be preserved because it will end with Jesus returning for his bride and initiating his kingdom on the earth. For He already initiated it, and it's spreading as a spiritual kingdom right now. But the physical kingdom of God is heaven. And it is where you and I will live forever if we are in Christ. So where's God? He's right in the middle of the story. And good news, he's right in the middle of Daniel. Last week we talked about Daniel in the lion's den. And I really wanted to pair last week with what we're going to read today in Daniel chapter 9. Because Daniel 1 through 6 and Daniel 7 through 12 are kind of like two different sets of stories. Because it's a chiasm, of course it's split in half. And, And the second half is a lot of prophecy and a lot of end times theology. When you look up stuff on Daniel, usually the story gets really weird. And what we're going to try to do for the next three weeks is not let it get obscure, but live in what is obvious from the scriptures and take from these stories. Okay, this is, we, we might have a lot of questions about what God meant by this vision or this ruler or this thing, but we do know what God is trying to say through this statement or on the back end of a vision that we don't know all the details of. This is the message that God is trying to get across. And that's what we're going to see today in Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you a title. The title of this sermon is called The Mercy. We're going to talk about the mercy of God. And we're actually going to read a prayer that Daniel prayed when King Darius, the Persian king, took over for the Babylonians. Remember, Darius is the one who threw Daniel into the lion's den, even though he didn't want to. He kind of got bound by his own law that he got tricked into giving. But when he took over, so this is kind of a step backward in time, Daniel offered this prayer to God that I believe is going to speak straight to our situations today. If you brought your Bible at the 11 a.m., hold it up, hold it up, hold them up. Bible attendance at the 9 was just insane. Hold them up high. Y'all, what's happening? Here, this is unheard of. This is unbelievable that this many of you would bring your Bible to church. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we've been living in this book. If you don't have a Bible, we will get you a Bible. If you turn in your iPhone every week, we will show you that you are wrong. And uh, that happens to me when I forget mine, and I'm like, I'm totally guilty, and everyone's looking at me right now. But I just find it easier to focus when there's actual physical pages in front of me. Of course, we'll have it on the screen. But we're going to read Daniel chapter 9, about 20 verses, and this is a prayer that was prayed in the middle of the story that we've been studying every week. If you've missed any part of Daniel so far, I would highly encourage you to go back, but I believe God's going to use this to speak. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. In the first year 
of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So this week's been brutal for me to prepare this sermon. But not as much because of everything happening in the world, more because of these three verses. I could preach on these three verses for an hour with how much I've been looking at them. And this is just the introduction to the prayer. This isn't even the good part. This isn't even the part that you're told you're supposed to focus on. But I'm like, this is unbelievable. In the first year of a new king taking over, so Daniel could have got destroyed when the Medo-Persian Empire takes over Babylon. Instead of getting destroyed, he gets elevated to just as high of a position as he had in Babylon. But he says he understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet. Daniel read his Bible. Jeremiah was a prophet who was around just a few years before this. Him and Daniel overlapped a little bit in lifetimes, but not much. Jeremiah was, was getting older and about to pass away right when Daniel was rising up to prominence in Babylon. But he had the scriptures from Jeremiah, which said, if you read it in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, that the desolation of Israel would last 70 years. Note that all series long, we've been talking about being formed by the word of God. That the promises of God are our anchor for peace. That we got to know the word. We can't just have verses that we hear on Sundays or favorite verses that we memorize. we got to know the scriptures so that we can have peace projected into our future instead of dread. Jeremiah 25.11 says that the desolation of Israel will last 70 years. When Daniel re reads that, the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, it's been about 60, 65 years at that point. Which means... It's close. What do you mean it's close? Israel was taken into captivity, guaranteed 70 years in exile. But what happens at the end of 70 years? There's a promise, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God promised his people that if they were faithful in exile, he would bring them back to Jerusalem in 70 years. And so Daniel reads, it's close. We're going back. The contents that we're about to read in Daniel's prayer look a lot like what we think he would have been praying with his windows open toward Jerusalem in the story that gets him thrown into the lion's den. But in this moment, he tells us why. Because I discerned from the scriptures that it was going to be 70 years and we're almost there. Now, now why am I telling you all that? Because of this. Go to verse 3. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. When you're reading your Bible, read it. Like, actually look at what you're reading. Because God's doing supernatural things here on Sundays. But the danger of it is believing that you need me up here to explain it for it to become cool and somehow relevant to your life. You don't need me. You just need to look at it. He said, I discerned that we were going to get to 70 years. They're almost there. And then... The desolation of, of Jerusalem is over. And then my response is, I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. If, he, if Daniel knows that the wait is almost over and they're about to go back to Jerusalem, why is that his response? 
It's almost over. We're about to go back. So I went into prayer mode. Because the function of prophecy in the Old Testament is not intended to tell you what the future is. It's intended to move you to create the future in light of what you're hearing. Prophecy in the Old Testament, especially warnings, they're not supposed to say, hey, this is going to happen no matter what you do. It's supposed to mean, hey, this will be the future if you don't change course. Or in this instance, it's this will be the future if you are faithful. So Jeremiah doesn't read the end of the story and go, okay, in a couple years we're going back. I can just chill in the Medo-Persian Empire in my position of power and wait. No, he views the promise coming to fruition as a reason to expedite his prayer life, to take it up another notch. You're like, what does that have to do with me? Y'all, we don't know the end of the story of just this story. We know the end of the ultimate story. Knowing that Jesus wins and putting that headline on the wall is not an excuse for spiritual apathy. It should actually move us into deeper depths of prayer and fasting and going after the heart of God in our day. Even though you're like, well, no matter what I pray, God's going to end the story with Jesus on the throne. You're right. But what if it was your prayer that God was moving through to initiate moves like that in our day? You get to participate in the story. I get to participate in the story. And, Jer- and Daniel's not sitting there going, I know how this ends, so I get to hang out. He's going, if I want that to be the story, I'm going to have to move with obedience. You need to understand the sovereignty of God is never a reason to sit on your hands spiritually. And, and being in a position of prosperity and wealth is not an excuse to live in self-preservation. It's actually the motive for living with a more radical pursuit of God. So we, we have this lie in our culture right now that the older you get, the safer you should become with your investments, with your future. You kinda, you're more bold in your 20s and your 30s, but then you get increasingly more self-preserving because life gets you know, complicated. you got a lot to think about. But the kingdom of God is totally upside down. If you're here and you are who we talked about last week, Daniel being thrown into the lion's den in the last season of his life. If you're in your 80s and we have those people, your 70s, maybe you're in your 50s and 60s and you're just becoming an empty nester and going, how do we manage this next season of your life? I'm trying to tell you, don't buy the lie that this is the season to sit on your hands and watch your life unfold around you and live the good life. Step into the more of God because statistically, here's a sobering fact. You're going to meet Jesus soon. And so do you want to go into eternal life carrying decades of self-preservation and just, well, we had to enjoy our life? No, you got all of eternity to do that. Lay it all on the line for the kingdom of God to spread. Now, I'm not saying, hey, don't, don't rest and don't take care of your body and all those things. No, rest has its rightful place. Trust me, I'm learning that lesson the hard way. Taking my first sabbatical this summer. And that, that is not like, oh, yeah, I get a month off. That is like, that is going to be very challenging for me because it's much easier for me to work my way into burnout than it is to actually let go and rest. Rest has its rightful place. But sitting on your hands when you're supposed to be moving forward and moving the ball down the field of the kingdom of God is not an option at this church. It's not an option in response to the gospel. And Jeremiah is going, I discern that we were close. So I pressed in even more. Watch what happens next. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Now, English lets you down right here. If you look at verse 3, 
where it says, so I turned to the Lord God. But then you look at verse 4, and it says, I prayed to the Lord my God. Sounds like he's saying the same thing. He's not. In verse 3, Lord God means Adonai. That's a word for sovereign ruler. I turn to the sovereign ruler. It's kind of a generic term for God. But then in verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God. That word is Yahweh. He's distinguishing the God of Israel and calling on God's particular personality through this prayer. And you're going to see that theme play out in the next couple of verses. The word of God is so cool. Daniel has changed forever the way I will preach to you guys. Because you guys realize that all we've done every week is read these stories and talk about them. And not that we didn't do that before, but like it's so dense that it's all I have time to do. And you're like, you take more time than you have time for. Yes, it's taking forever. All I do is just read and talk about it. And I believe the Holy Spirit is honoring our commitment to the scriptures here. Because you guys don't need self-help and life advice from a 33-year-old who barely knows what he's talking about. You need the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate the scriptures and open your eyes to the wisdom of God. And all I'm doing is trying to get out of the way. So let, let, let's read it. I prayed to the Lord my God, Yahweh, and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. Are you catching the tone of this prayer? This is a prayer of confession, of lamenting, of repentance. And Daniel's like, Lord, the great and awesome God, you are amazing. You are righteous. You are faithful. You are not wrong. We are wrong. We have acted wickedly. Now, What's crazy is Daniel is referring to generations of unfaithfulness that came before him. But as I read this, I'm going, Daniel, are you, are you sure this prayer is true about you? Did you notice how many times he said we and us? We did this. We did this. Us. Us. We deserve this. You're righteous. We missed it. You're doing everything you're supposed to do, and we are the ones who are guilty. Well, I'm reading it, and I'm going, I know they're guilty, like Israel, and they were really unfaithful to God, but you weren't. In fact, you are the opposite of everything that you are praying right now. If you go back to read these stories, it's like, Daniel, didn't you get taken into exile and stay faithful to God and eat vegetables instead of the king's food and wine, which actually sounds really good on paper, instead of the vegetables, but you stayed faithful to God and your dietary restrictions and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stayed faithful to God even when the fiery furnace was threatening them, and you stayed faithful to God even when lion's den was going to be your fate? Like, I don't know. This is true about your nation, but it's not true about you. Why are you praying like you're the one who's guilty? Because... Daniel understood something about the power of generational guilt. And he's going, no, it wasn't me. But I'm going to include myself humbly in the problems that were created so that maybe my prayer before God can be what ends the cycle. 
Some of you get really uncomfortable here when we talk about generational sin. But it's as plain as day. We inherit the lives that we are given by our parents and our families of origin. Some of you have never thought to go there in prayer and actually name out loud the sins of your fathers and mothers. And go, God, I'm not mad at them. I'm not holding this against them. But if this has the capacity to hurt me, let it end with me and I repent right here, right now, today. That's humility, and that's the type of prayer that can break chains. And it, it doesn't just break chains in your family. I believe it could break chains in our country. Right now, when people talk about the guilt of our country, they aim it in one of two directions. Just this week, that was explicitly clear. And I wasn't going to do this today. I did it at the nine, and kind of we had a couple of elders here, and I was like, are you guys okay with this? Even like live in the moment and what I was saying. And then after the service, they were like, say it and say more next time. I was like, okay, be careful what you wish for. Um, <laughs> this week, two narratives in America being said in response. Other than good, like healthy, we're praying for Ukraine, this is not okay, denouncing it. Two narratives. One narrative is this is happening because our current president is weak. And if President Donald Trump were still in office, this never would have happened. The other narrative that's going out there is this is happening because President Donald Trump got elected and his friendship with this president of Russia paved the way for him to be able to do what he's doing. So we got half over here going, this is their fault, and half over here going, this is their fault. And this is just one instance of the many that we've encountered over the course of the last decade where the division of our country is on the rise more than ever. Let me tell you what will change our country. Our country will change when Christians start praying, owning the guilt that's not even theirs. When Christians start going before God and going, God, we did this. Even if it's not your fault, I carry the level of guilt. And I know women in our church who pray like this. They pray like this over our city this is going to be a huge news flash to some of you. Does it ever feel like Auburn is just awesome and sort of separated from a lot of suffering that the rest of the world doesn't go through? And sometimes storms come to this area and they like move around our city and it's the weirdest thing. This is going to shock you. It's because there is a remnant praying here. Like there are women who I've heard pray and they take guilt that's not even their own over things that have happened in our community. They repent for some of your sins that are not even theirs. And God honors that prayer. God honors the humble prayer that doesn't go, God, oh, this is not my fault. This is their fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. It's their fault. What if Christians were gathered and going, God, we have sinned before you? Because I got news for you. that America didn't go downhill because of the last two presidents that got elected. America went downhill when we got in bed with secularism. When we decided that we're gonna define the terms of sexuality, not the Bible. We're gonna define the terms of who's a human being and who's a clump of cells. We're gonna define, we're God is what we said to God. And so at any point, no matter what political party you are or what your agenda is, you can sit and get on your knees before God and go, God, we have sinned, even if you're not the one responsible. We are the ones who have done all this wrong. We are the ones who have missed it. And you pray with that kind of repentance and all of a sudden you are aligned with the heart of God. We need it, y'all. We need, and I know, I feel it in my own soul. There's so much I want to say. And there are so many opinions that I have to check in my flesh and go, what's ultimately helpful for the body of Christ? And what's the most helpful is humility. Daniel has every reason to go, God, these people of yours, and there's leaders in the Old Testament who do that. 
Daniel could go, they missed it. Why don't you give me a group of faithful people? Because obviously I'm an awesome leader and I'll lead them back into Jerusalem and it'll be amazing. He goes, we've sinned. We missed it. Go to verse nine. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. Okay, this is beautiful. That language in Hebrew, because we've switched from Aramaic back to Hebrew and we're going to talk about that next week. Those two words are they don't make sense in English. They're plural. The Lord, is, our God, is, um, it's, it's, we'd have to make up a word, is mercifuls and forgivings. It, it's almost an active present word that keeps compounding and multiplying. He's just got mercy that keeps growing. He's forgiving, and his forgiveness just literally grows by the second, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord, our God, or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. Daniel's going, what's happened to us has only happened to confirm and verify what was written. If you want to know what was written, it's in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 32, which basically says, if Israel persists in sin, I will allow another to come and take her into exile and enslave her. What God did through the Babylonian Empire taking Jerusalem into exile was on the back end of so many warnings from the prophets saying, if you keep walking away, if you keep walking away, this is what is going to happen. This is what is going to happen. And Daniel is just acknowledging that this terrible thing that has happened to his people, that's happened to his family, God's not the one to blame. The sinfulness of Jerusalem is to blame. The level of humility that it takes to say that when your parents were probably murdered in front of your eyes is astounding. God, this is because you were faithful to keep your word. I am not coming before you today to show you that you missed something. I'm coming before you today to confirm you were righteous and we were unfaithful. In fact, instead of turning to you and getting your favor, we continue to turn away from you. Look at verse 14. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. This is where Daniel's prayer shifts. It's all, you're righteous, we're guilty. You're righteous, we're guilty. You're righteous, we're guilty. And then he goes, Lord, you brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And your name is on our people and our city. What Daniel is doing is he's showing that the basis for his prayer is not, God, we're right. Will you act on our behalf? The basis for his prayer is, God, you're glorious. 
and your glory is being shamed by us. And so will you please intervene? Why? For your sake. Not, not, not because of us, but because you're passionate about your glory. Remember last week we talked about praying aligned with the heart of God? That when Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, it will be given to you, that's not an invitation to make God a vending machine. That's an invitation to learn what it means to pray in Jesus' name. That when you're praying with something that's so aligned with the heart of God, God looks down and is pleased to answer that prayer. And Daniel's going, I'm praying because I care about your glory. For your name, for your city, do something. Go to verse 18. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. The end of this prayer is my favorite section in the whole book of Daniel. Because at the end, he starts calling on the glory of God, going, we're called by your name. Do this for you. Do this for you. And then the whole prayer hinges on one line in verse 18. Let me show it to you. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. If all that happens at Auburn Community Church today is that that verse sinks in just a little bit, today could be powerful for years to come. Daniel goes, I don't bring this prayer to you because I have a righteousness of my own. But then he says something. He doesn't say, I don't bring this because of my righteousness. I bring this because of your righteousness, which would make sense. The whole prayer, he's been like, God, you are righteous. You're the one who's holy. But he goes, I don't bring this before you because of my righteousness or your righteousness. I'm bringing this before you because of what? Your great mercy. Every person in this room has the same sinful issue of having an impoverished view of the mercy of God. When I read your great mercy... Whatever you thought about, when you thought about the mercy of God was small in comparison to how vast it is. God is a God of mercy, and I believe the best days of your relationship with God will be the days that you embrace that this is what God wants you to react to about his personality. Mercy. Because when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, this was the decisive characteristic of who he is. This could be a game changer if you'll tune in with what I'm about to say. Exodus 34, when God walks in front of Moses, what did Moses say to prompt that? He said, God, show me your glory. Now, God, in response, that word glory means like weight, the goodness of who you are, the, the power of who you are. Put it on display in a way where I can see who you are, where I can know you. God says, okay, you can't look at me face to face because you'll just obliterate and die. But I'll let you see my backside as I walk by. But as I walk by, I'm going to speak out my name. And when God, before God even says his name, he blurts out this statement. It's almost like he can't help but say it. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then when God walks by Moses, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, distinguishing himself from among other little G gods. 
The gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When God makes known his personality, the dominant marker of who he is is one word, mercy. Mercy. You might be here and be like, I thought it was love. Love's not a part of God's personality. It's who he is. God is love. But when God wants to make himself known to humanity, he wants you to know the one thing you got to know and the one thing you got to react to is that I'm merciful. It would help to know the definition of mercy, wouldn't it? Oxford Dictionary definition. Here we go. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Y'all, God could be anyone he wants to be. And what we read in the scriptures is that if God is any way in relation to human beings, he is like this. Mercy, compassion, or forgiveness when it is within one's power to inflict harm. And I would argue God's mercy is a step higher than that definition because it's not just within God's power to punish you. It's within his merit. God is so holy and righteous and human beings are so sinful and separated that the only reaction to a holy God hitting the sinfulness of human beings is hell, wrath. The fact that God's response to that collision is, my son will become one of them, become the sin offering and the high priest that will stand between me and them so we can be united forever. God is more ridiculously merciful than you have ever given him credit for. And it's the dominant part of who he is. So you might be here and be like, yeah, he's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath. He is a God of wrath, and hell is real. But here's the thing. Even when he reveals his personality, it's mercy, 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 wrath. And then on the end of it, he goes, showing love to thousands and punishing the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Have you ever read that and just gone, What's up with the grandkids getting punished, God? Like, why? Why? Whoa. You know what God was doing when he made that statement? He was showing you a comparison between his wrath side and his mercy side. And it's tipped in one direction, very far. He is a God of mercy, so much more than he is a God of wrath, even though he is a God of wrath. He will punish sin. The thing is, if you're in Christ... The justice of God was inflicted on Jesus for your behalf. And now your entire life as a son or a daughter of God is stepping into this mercy on a daily basis and accepting. If you don't accept anything else, it has to begin with God loves me. And it is not on the basis of any effort I bring. Romans chapter 9, not because of human effort, but based on God's mercy. I'm asking you to become bold enough to let this become your pursuit of God. I'm asking you to do what I've been doing the last couple of months, and it's made my morning prayer time so much more powerful. I've been waiting to move on in prayer until I believe that God loves me again. The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. When I pray, most of my life, it's been, God, oh man, you are so holy, and I am so sinful. True but you skip the beginning of the prayer. Our Father in heaven. Before you pray about and talk to God about how holy he is and how sinful you are, make sure it sinks in that in Christ you're still loved as a son or daughter. Make sure the mercy of God is standing 
as a foundational point for the rest of what you believe about your relationship with God and then let it flow. Oh, he's going to have some things in you that need to change. The word is going to convict you. But if you don't have the foundation of God is a God of mercy, you will spend the rest of your life apologizing for things God has already forgiven you for and feeling 10 steps behind, not realizing that you're 50 steps ahead. He's, God is such a God of mercy that it, it shouldn't just comfort you how patient he is with your sins. It should make you uncomfortable how patient he is with the sins of others. Do y'all realize why President Putin is still breathing today? Number one reason, because God is merciful. That merciful. And you hear that and you go, I don't like that level of mercy. If he wasn't that way, you wouldn't be saved. He is not like you. He doesn't think like you. He doesn't relate like you. Isaiah says his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and his ways are so much higher than our ways that it's literally like dividing between the heavens and the earth how far away these two things are. Do you also know that Isaiah 55 is about how loving and forgiving God is, not about how sovereign and powerful he is. The thing about God that is the hardest for a human being to let in is not his sovereign order of the universe. It's how in the world he can be this patient with how broken and desolate we really are. God is a God of mercy. And I want to encourage you, will you start to make this your knee-jerk reaction when you think about God? Will you start to make this the first thing that hits your mind? When we start that first song next Sunday, you're like, I'm on spring break. The next Sunday, will you stop spending the first couple of songs, the first couple of minutes in prayer, recoiling away from his embrace? And will you start just letting it swallow you completely? God, I, oh man, if what it means to abide in you is to first and foremost remain in your love, I've got to believe again that I'm loved by you. And I've got to reframe my mind to view mercy as your knee-jerk reaction to me not wrath, and not even working out all my sinful issues. Is this helping anybody? Two points before we go. Number one, I know this one's heavy. It's intense. It's very simple what I want you to do with it. This list could be 15 things long. I just feel like these two were the most strong. Let God's mercy produce patience. There's a direct relationship between how merciful God is and the patience that comes from a byproduct of tasting it. Patience with other people, yes, but also patience with God. When you know God has been that merciful to you and that patient with you, the byproduct of that should be you looking at him and understanding that his timing is not your timing. And that happens in Daniel chapter 9. So what happens after Daniel prays? There's a conversation where an angel literally shows up. Go to verse 20. I'm going to read this in the ESV just because I like this translation of, of this passage a little bit better than the NIV. It says, while I was speaking and praying, so he's still praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O oh Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Love that when Gabriel, this is the same Gabriel who told Mary she was pregnant with the Son of God. You see him all over the scriptures. Before he tells Daniel the meaning of a vision, he wants him to know that he's greatly loved. 
you you got to have that foundational point of mercy and love to even move forward. But I also want you to note that Daniel started praying and a word went out, but the word didn't get there until later in the prayer. That's huge. A couple of chapters later in Daniel, Daniel will pray and fast for three weeks and be waiting on an answer from God. And then an angel will come. I think it's Gabriel. It might be a different one. An angel will come and say, hey, I left right when you started praying, but it took me three weeks to get to you because I was stopped by the prince of Persia, who, newsflash, is a demon with authority over Persia. That's in Daniel. And the angel is like, I would have gotten here sooner, but I've been in that fight for three weeks. Now I'm here. Whoa. So when I pray, there's like an unseen war going on in response to my prayers. Yes. Like humanity is the grand stage with which cosmic war is being waged. And the decisive blow that won the war for God and for us was the cross and the empty tomb. We'll celebrate it on Easter and every other Sunday that we have together. But between now and our eternal kingdom, there's more happening than we see. Sometimes while you're praying, God is responding, but you don't know it yet. And the mercy of God has to produce this patience where you go, God, because you move at a timetable and a level that I don't, I'm comfortable in the unknown and the tension of the mystery. And I'm comfortable trusting that you're responding to my pleas and you're responding to my prayers. Now, what this angel brings to Daniel is something called the 77s. It's widely regarded to be the hardest passage of scripture to understand. There's so many different scholarly opinions, and we could get lost in the obscurity of what's next, of, okay, what has to do with the Roman Empire, what has to do with Jesus, what has to do with the end times, and, and we're not going to get lost in that obscurity. What you do need to know is that in the middle of Daniel 9 is, is sort of this, Tyler will explain it next week, it's this huge chiasm where the middle of it in Daniel 9 is the anointed one humbling himself, even to the point of death, so that his dominion will reign forever and ever. But what you have in this moment is an invitation to patience and not just patience with God, patience with other people. I got to hurry, but I got to hit this. I could stand up here all day long and preach on mercy. I love it. I love that every time I've ever bowed my head, every time I've ever sung a song, every time I've ever opened my Bible, every time I've ever sinned, God's reaction to me has been kindness that leads me to repentance. More mercy, more mercy, more mercy. He's a fountain of mercy and he doesn't lose mercy the more he gives it out. He becomes more rich in mercy the more he forgives. It's beautiful. God's amazing. But here's what's hard for me to preach. Hey, if God's going to be that patient with you, how patient are you with the people who are dysfunctional in your life? How patient are you with those who it's easy to write off and it's easy to go, well, I just I need them to mature faster. I have that thought double-digit times per week. As a pastor, a dad, a friend, as someone who from a young age, I got serious about the scriptures and getting myself emotionally healthy. There are so many times a day I think to myself, that person has to get there faster. They have to get more mature now. If God ever thought about me that way, I would not, I don't think I'd be alive. <laughs> like, I'm going, I'm really glad that that's not the way you relate to me when I come to you because my reaction, whoa. And so it checks me to go, hold on, hold on. You cannot allow things like emotional health and boundaries become a weapon for you to distance yourself from people who are trying to change. You've got to let it make you more patient. This is just what God's working in me. 
that the mercy of God makes you go, okay, they're not changing at the pace that I would like to see. Thank you, Jesus, that you're patient with me at whatever pace it takes for me to be transformed into the image of Christ. And if you keep your eyes on the mercy of God, it will become your fuel for forgiving other people. Anytime somebody's in my office or I'm in a conversation where they tell me a situation where it's really hard to forgive somebody, immediately in my head, I'm already processing and thinking, how aware by the end of this conversation can I make this person of their own sin? Because if they're struggling to forgive him, forgive her, they probably have a rightful reason for feeling that way. But as soon as we feel that need for justice there and disregard what God has done for us, we've crossed the line and we'll start to become more entitled than we are grateful. And gratitude has to stay your posture because of mercy. Let God's mercy produce patience. Number two, then I'm done. This one's gonna be quick. Let God's mercy stir affection. It is not acceptable to lose your passion for Jesus. Plain and simple, not acceptable. And there are a lot of days, as emotional as I am and as passionate as I can be on stage, the fight to keep my zeal up, never lacking in zeal, like Romans chapter 12 says, it's hard. What I have found to be gasoline on the fire of my passion for God is remembering the mercy of God. And so if you wake up and you go, I'm just, I'm no longer driven to follow Jesus. I haven't sensed him. I haven't felt him in a while. I would argue you've gotten disconnected from the mercy of God and you need to get reconnected to what it took to save you. What did it take? The cross, the blood, the empty tomb. That's why we're taking communion today. And you don't have to grab your elements. I'm gonna do that in just one second. Lately, I have been, not lately, it's been for years I've been so convicted about the way we do communion as a church. We do it once every couple of months, and it's a cracker and juice. And so I was like, I want to see this change eventually. And we, we built Hamilton Road to have communion stations in the auditorium where y'all can take communion during worship. They'll be there every week. It's going to be awesome. But that wasn't good enough. Like, I still, it was just bothering me that, why? This sacrament that we've been entrusted with to remember the body and the blood of Jesus why do we just do this in passing every once in a while? I think part of the reason why more, more churches this morning are preaching self-help than the cross are because we left behind communion. Communion anchors everything in remembering that Jesus' blood and his body paved the way to God for us. And so we're, we're not, not going to wait till Hamilton Road. Very soon, could start next week, but very soon, we're going to start com- doing communion at the end of every sermon at Auburn Community Church. I believe it's that important. I'm going to preach on it in a couple of weeks. But as we're stepping into this moment, this is where we physically remember that it took blood and a broken body of our Savior to bring us back from separation from God. This is a moment for husbands to pray over their wives. I know I'm asking you to pray twice in the same gathering. It's crazy, but you can do it. Go ahead and get it out now. And if you didn't get a communion set on your way in and you want one, just raise your hand right where you are and our team will find you. I know some of y'all came in late. Some of y'all may have missed that on the way in, but if you just raise your hand, they will bring one to you. This is an imperfect way of remembering what Christ called us to remember. And lastly, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you just wanna sit this one out. This is for people who have fully committed their lives to following Jesus, who are remembering the sacrifice that brought them back. And if you wanna place your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time, this would be a great moment to do that. I'm not gonna close in prayer. The band will be up in just a couple of minutes. This is y'all's moment to repent before God, to remember the mercy of God. And then we'll come right back.